Hello, and welcome back to the Delexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sarah Shavas, Dr. Tristan Getz, a postdoctoral fellow of Embedded Ethics in the philosophy department at Harvard University. Hi, Dr. Getz, how are you today? I'm good, thanks, Sarah. I'm doing well as well. Thank you for your time and for being here today. Before we begin our discussion on a very interesting topic, I want to ask you, how did you get into philosophy and, and what kind of stood out to you? So I find, I find this a hard question to answer. It's, it's not like there's a specific moment in my life where like I got into philosophy. Uh, it was sort of something that was just always around me. Uh, I think because of the way that my, like the kind of people my parents are, um, they're both like sensitive and intelligent people who think carefully about things and read really widely. Um, so there's just always material that was philosophically interesting around in the house and conversations that were happening. Um, and I think for them, the entry point was through religion. Um, my, like they're both like unconventional when it comes to their religious beliefs and practices, neither of them are denominational. Um, my dad mixes uh, elements of, of, of uh, Judaism and Christianity into his own personal life, even though he's not religious, I, I, I understand, right? Um, so uh, I think like through those kinds of starting points uh, in thinking about the place of religion in one's life, metaphysics and ethics were part of the conversation around the dinner table. Um, and thinking about these sorts of things was something that was encouraged around the house. Um, my brothers and our friends would always have these kinds of chats as well. Um, so it's not like there was a, a specific moment that I found my way into this. It was just sort of always around me. Uh, when it comes to like thinking about this professionally, um, there was there, there is a kind of more specific moment. So um, my undergraduate degree is an interdisciplinary degree. It's called knowledge integration. It's at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And they have uh, some philosophy courses that are part of the core of this highly interdisciplinary uh, uh, program that involves taking courses all over the university's catalog. Um, and in one of these courses, we were talking about the social responsibilities of scientists. And uh, the professor who's a philosopher of biology um, uh, was coming at this question from a philosophical angle. We were talking about some philosophy of science and philosophy of policy. And I think that was the moment where I realized that um, philosophy can be about more than just uh, individual reflection on the big questions and how one should live one's life and can actually uh, be a tool set for thinking about structural elements of society and solving difficult problems. Um, and so that was, that was a moment when I started to really get into taking more philosophy courses and with a particular focus on uh, questions around moral responsibility and epistemic injustice and uh, feminist issues uh, that, and uh, then slightly later on, uh, philosophy of education 
and then eventually philosophy of computing and information technologies. Um, because I like I, I I feel like this is like thinking about things philosophically is a distinctive way of thinking about problems and questions. Um, and it's an approach that I think we could use more of when we're trying to tackle these kinds of issues as a society, and not just as individuals who are trying to figure out our place in the world. Yeah, I agree with your, your last point, um, especially for, I mean, like, the purpose of this podcast is obviously to include that include the youth in that conversation. But I think there's so many aspects, um, like everywhere in like legal system or like just in, in, in science and kind of biology and all of these like fields to include philosophy, um, because there's a lot of questions to ask. And that's kind of the benefit of philosophy or like philosophical thinking. Uh, it introduces way more questions. Um, and I think that's kind of an, an important part of philosophy. Um, and I think like, you know, this is actually the first time I've heard about like the, the religion kind of being a, a part of like how philosophy can be entire in, in your life. Um, I think a lot of people have experiences with philosophy through English class. I think that's the generic where there's a lot of readings um, that might be philosophically um, inducing or something like that. And I think that's the that's the the, the way in. I think a lot of people have trouble kind of justifying the um, the philosopher role as a, as a profession i think uh that's like from what from what past guests have said where their parents had problems or like discussions um and i think i think it's always just good to see that people stuck through with it because there is a lot of like stigma around those jobs i feel um but i want to move on because i don't want to ramble about like philosophy jobs too much um and i wanted to ask you kind of about the the social issues that revolve around computer science um but first to do that we kind of need to understand what computer science is so what exactly is computer science and i think a lot of people um assume computer science to just be like coding um, is that true? Um, and if not, what exactly is it? Right. So, I mean, I'm not a computer scientist. So, like, my, my answer might be a little off base, but this is, like, this is my understanding. So, I think it would be, um, I think it would be more appropriate to say computer programming or coding is a skill that is centrally important to computer science. Um, the way that writing is a skill that's centrally important to philosophy or history or uh, English language arts and that sort of thing. Um, but we wouldn't, but it's like a category mistake to say that writing is history or that they're the same thing. Um, so computer science really is the, is the study of computation. Um, and it, in some ways it's the, the sister, the younger sister of mathematics in that way. It's about uh, how we manipulate numbers and transform information to solve problems, to make discoveries. Um, and what computer scientists study um, is processes of computing um, and methods for computation. Um, and that can be on the software side. So they would be doing some like fairly advanced computer programming to do this sort of thing. But what they're interested in are things like um, what are new processes, new algorithms that we can use to uh, process information differently to solve different kinds of problems. Maybe that's like coming up with a better cryptography algorithm to make communication more secure. Um, 
or maybe it's about solving a particularly difficult problem that uh, you need some sophisticated computational tools in order to solve some kind of mathematical issue that is impossible for a human being to do by hand. Um, uh, so that's like that's my understanding of what computer science is about. It's it's about um, how we do computation, um, and very often that involves electronic computers, but it need not. Um, there, like you could study computation in an analog way. It would take a lot longer, and the problems you could deal with would be uh, somewhat less sophisticated. But it's it's something that has been done and could still be done. So when you talk about uh, computation, what, what exactly do you mean by computation? Uh, so computation is, uh, my understanding is that computation is the process of rule-based transformation of information. Um, so mathematics, like doing mathematics is a kind of computation where you're just solving an equation or some other, or like, doing a proof or something like that. That's a kind of computation. Um, computation also involves, um, like you could all, like the processes are the same, but you could, but what the, what those data that you're processing represent can change. So uh, anything that you can in principle transform into quantitative information, you can compute. Um, and Computer scientists are always coming up with new ways of doing this sort of thing. So you can encode language into numerical data, and then a computer can work with it. Uh, you can encode images, like the video that's being recorded now, into uh, uh, numerical information, and then a computer can do something with it. Um, and that's sort that's that's kind of where the power of computation comes from is this realization from the late 19th century that um, anything that you can transform into a mathematical representation, you can run some algorithms on, transform that information and discover things. Um, so uh, some of the earliest uses of that come from uh, things like spreadsheets from businesses and running computation on data that you enter into that using punch card machines uh, to try to find ways of analyzing the different processes going on in your manufacturing or something like that. Stuff that is like very similar to what we do in Excel and Google Sheets now. Um, so uh, that, that, that's, I think, what computation is, is this, this series of processes and methods for uh, transforming information to serve different kinds of purposes. Got it. And I think um, just to confirm that most likely, in, like I guess the modern world, the 21st century, those things have to do with electronics now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people do still compute by hand. Like you, you will, like, like if you're calculating the, the tip for a bill at the restaurant or something, you might scribble on the receipt to figure that out. Uh, instead of pulling up a calculator on your phone. Um, but the mo much computation is done electronically now, mainly just because computers are better at it when we tell them what to do correctly. Um, they can work through numbers much faster and much more complex uh, 
computations than human beings can. Um, so that's why uh, uh, that's why the word computer changed meaning from a person who does calculations to an electronic device that does calculations. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess touching on like this this concept of like the, the punch cards and kind of data, and I guess now it's it's more often done with computers and like uh, higher, I guess, I don't want to say like they're not organisms, but like higher um, and, and, and better kind of abilities, because obviously they're able to perform calculations at a much faster speed than humans are. Um, but I guess like our immediate assumption with data is that bigger is always better. Um, and like that paradigm shapes not just research in like computer science, but a lot of different fields like biology as well, right? Um, you presented at the Web Science Conference in 2021 with a paper titled, Bigger Isn't Better, The Ethical and Science Scientific Vices of Extra Large Datasets and Language Models. I'm curious about why this paradigm is problematic. Um, is it only in the context of language models or all models? Right, so, um, so this paper was uh, something I co-authored with Darren Abramson, who's a philosopher at Dalhousie University. Um, and the, the problem that we discussed there is very similar to some of the issues that uh, Timnit Gebru and Margaret Mitchell and their colleagues have been talking about as well. Um, in their famous stochastic, stochastic parrots paper that uh, precipitated Mitchell and Gebru being fired from Google, um, they talk about some of the uh, some of the problems that can arise from using huge data sets to train machine learning models. Uh, one of them is sustainability. So it takes a lot of electricity to crunch through these huge data sets. Um, there's one estimate that like to train an instance of uh, a particular machine learning model, I think it was BERT, um, it emits as much carbon as a Trans-American flight um, and this is just like training one instance of this model on one computer. Um, so it's the sustainability in terms of carbon emissions from electricity is huge. It's also an issue in terms of the materials you need for the hardware. Um, but they also talk about things like um, bias in the data sets, um, which sort of arises inevitably if you're taking data from the real world because our societies are biased in systemic kinds of ways. Um, the issues that we extend to in that web science paper um, are ways in which we notice that uh, when, you, when you use very large data sets for certain kinds of problems in uh, computer science, you can end up in a situation where ethical and scientific problems come together. Um, so one example of this is quality and labor issues. Uh, and this arises from the fact that when, you're when you need to construct these bespoke data sets of language problems to test natural language processing models, um, you need a lot of people to make that, that those data. It's th these are problems like, so one, one class of examples takes the form of questions like this. The trophy didn't fit in the suitcase because it was too small. What was too small? In this case, it's a suitcase. 
Trophy didn't fit in the suitcase because it was too large. What was too large? The trophy. Humans are really good at figuring out what it refers to in these kinds of sentences. Um, natural language models are often very bad at it. They can't really tell what it is. They can't really track what it is we're talking about because it relies on some background knowledge about trophies and suitcases or whatever it is we're talking about. So uh, there's a whole series of research questions around, well, how do we get a computational system to pick up on these associations between words and concepts? And uh, in order to figure out whether there's been success at that, you need to give them a library of, uh, of test cases like these. Um, but you want to but because but you want to make sure that they perform robustly on a wide range of examples. And so researchers create these huge data sets of tens of thousands of questions like this. That would be impossible to do uh, as a researcher who has limited time. It's, uh, and it would be impossible to hire students to do it because it would cost too much and they have other things to do. So the usual solution is to use crowd workers. Amazon Mechanical Turk is one example of this where um, uh, Amazon will go out and find people who are willing to be paid pennies to do these sorts of tedious tasks. And uh, one, one of those tasks is to come up with a question of this form. Um, now that sounds like a, like a good solution to this problem. Um, but there, there's a series of issues that come with it. So one is labor issues. Um, crowd workers are paid very badly. They don't get benefits. They're under huge pressure from above to do lots of tasks as fast as they can. They're very often already marginalized in multiple intersecting ways. And they're trying to make a little bit of extra spending money in their downtime. Um, and that's not a situation that uh, creates quality language puzzles. Um, there's a reason why the New York Times pays someone a lot of money to make crosswords and stuff. Like th these are not easy things to do. Um, and it's not that these people are bad at doing these sorts of things per se. I wouldn't want to generalize that way, but they're in a situation where attention to detail is not something that's incentivized. Um, and when you have 10,000 of these examples that are generated this way, it's very hard to audit it for quality. Um, unless you get, again, you use crowd workers and then that just reintroduces the same problem again at higher level. Um, so without knowing whether or not these data sets are actually any good really, uh, it's hard to know what using them to test a machine learning model is actually showing. Um, and in fact, we uh, in that paper, we present a, a command line tool that you can run on your own computer and it will show you some real examples from one of these data sets. And you can take the test yourself as if you were the machine learning model. And what we found as we were exploring these data sets in this way is that there's a lot of problems with uh, these, kind, these kinds of questions that are generated this way. Often they rely on some specific cultural knowledge or they're clearly written by someone who speaks a different dialect of English from what the model is trained on, uh, or they just contain errors or there's uh, issues where multiple answers to the question that would be presented to the model 
are potentially correct, depending on how you interpret it. So anything that's trained on these things is sort of dubious what exactly it is that it's showing. Um, and so the, this kind of, so, so you end up with this research problem, this scientific problem where it's not really clear if making a huge data set is actually helping you to show that you've created a model that's doing what it's supposed to do. And on the other hand, uh, it's contributing to labor injustices and other kinds of ethical problems. Um, so, and that's just one of these paired ethical and scientific issues that we talk about in that paper. There's others like how uh, the paradigm of giant data sets hands over a lot of power to big tech companies who run all the cloud services. Um, and the expense of that contributes to the underrepresentation of uh, certain researchers in the AI development space who maybe don't work for institutions that have access to these kinds of resources um, or who might not be at an institution at all. And we're like, trying to do the Bill Gates thing of like starting up some kind of, some kind of technology research or development from a garage. It's hard to do that if you don't have a lar large amount of money uh, just to get started with the, the kinds of uh, compute power that you need to run these kinds of things. As for whether this sort of thing generalizes, I mean, uh, I think there's a, there's a sort of general issue whenever we're dealing with these giant data sets, um, which you need in order to make machine learning work at all. Um, and so uh, you, you end up with this problem where to get it to work, you need a lot of data. You can either get it from real life, in which case it probably isn't gonna fit the specific need that you have, it's probably going to have gaps and mistakes in it. Um, or you can create the data, but then you introduce these new problems of like, how are you going to compensate the people who make it? How are you going to make sure that this huge data set is actually fit to purpose? Um, so sort of stuck in a double bind with any kind of machine learning, um, but it's very hard to figure out that you've got the, the data that you need. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's just a common issue or not an issue, but a very big problem within machine learning altogether. Um, and, and we'll touch on kind of like this power dynamic uh, a little bit later, but I wanted to ask a follow-up question because it seems that a lot of the issues around this data is almost in data collection. Um, and so I, I want to move on and in, into a field uh, like specialized medical prediction, right? In, in these areas, there is a need for a lot of data um, in terms of like predictions, right? Uh, in creating predictions. And so is big data problematic here? Um, like obviously maybe it's not crowdsourced and there's a lot of dilemmas with crowdsourcing, but because this is like researchers in actual lab, like, and with patients, it, it is big data a problem here. And if not, why can we have like selective cases where big data is problematic and then selective cases where it's not problematic? Is it uh, like a confounding variable as to why big data is problematic in these, these scenarios? Um, and is the goal to make it like more accessible or something like that? I think it's complex and fraught. Um, so I don't think it's a, it's a yes or no question that uh, big data is good or bad. I don't think it's a yes or no question that some applications of big data are good or bad. Um, I think there's there's just, there's so many different points at which uh, problems can be introduced that 
doing this well is hard. Um, when it comes to things like medical prediction, uh, there is a recent example of um, some, a, a team was trying to do something good. They wanted to help hospitals figure out uh, how to triage patients and allocate spending. Um, so they made a model that was supposed to assess people's uh, health risk as a patient, given certain parameters about their medical history and their current condition. And um, there, was a, there were a pair of articles that came out in Science about this that showed um, that this model would systematically uh, assign black patients a lower health risk than white patients, even if they had similar medical histories and similar current conditions. And the reason for it, it turned out, was that the data they used to train the model was a uh, was hospital spending on individual patients with particular histories. And as it turns out, because of systemic racism, um, hospitals are, in general, spending more on white patients than on patients of color. And this created a situation where, because of the, the way they were using this as a proxy variable for health risk, assuming that if someone costs the hospital more money, they must have been at a higher health risk. Seems like a reasonable assumption, but given the fact that there's this disparity in healthcare access and in healthcare decision-making, um, it ended up reproducing this exact same problem um, because it came out of real world data where this is a problem that mostly goes unacknowledged. Um, so, uh, I think that like this kind of issue, like I mentioned, is, is gonna come up anytime we have to deal with huge amounts of data. It's very hard to go through it and make sure that these kinds of problems don't exist in it. It's uh, difficult to course correct afterwards because people often get confused about uh, computer systems. They sort of think that the human element's been removed even though it's sort of been obscured. Um, so uh, when, whenever you're taking huge amounts of data from real life, you have to be aware of the, the possibility that these patterns are going to uh, appear in them and that the computer system is going to pick up on it and amplify it. Um, but if you create data yourself, um, like if you hire some people to create synthetic data, uh, there's all kinds of other questions about how do you go about doing that? Um, how are you going to assess that for quality? How are you going to make sure that it actually represents a certain a kind of idealized form of reality? Um, it's just hard. Um, so I think that like, the answer to the question of like, are there selective cases where big data is a problem or isn't? It's just full of problems. And there are ways of, there are ways of uh, addressing them and mitigating the problems, but there is no use case other than maybe teaching a computer to play chess or something, there is no use case where it's not going to present these kinds of issues. And developers need to know that these are issues and have diverse teams that will pick up on different, uh, different intersectional biases that might come out of real world data. For sure. So it seems like almost like definitely a case by case scenario. Um, and the, maybe like, 
the takeaway here is just what we like what you just mentioned about how developers need to acknowledge that these things exist. Um, and I think like, for example, like even Google Translate a while ago, like had like very, very like terrible translations um, that were like deeply misogynistic um, and racist. So like there is like a lot of necessity to kind of help uh, create better, better data sets to help these models, because I don't think it's like necessarily like a problem with the models per se, but more about the data that we're feeding the models. Um, and I think that's com commonly a misconception uh, that people have that they, they tend to blame the, the model, but not really the data behind it. Um, and that can lead to some sort of mistrust, which is actually the next question about trust um, in the context of computer science. So the question of trust uh, in terms of machinery probably traces back to like ancient civilizations with mechanical advances to do certain tasks and whether they would be just better off doing human labor. But in the modern era, we've all gotten sort of used to this, um, the technology that's around us, like for example, Siri um, or Google Assistant or Alexa, or even like, uh, I, I don't know, like, car, like CarPlay now, which is, I guess, an extension of Siri, but still all these things exist within our daily lives and we've just gotten used to them. What is the relationship that we as a society should have with technology or computer science? Should we be cautious of trusting these technologies or should we just embrace them um, like fully? It's all, it, it, I find it funny to think about um, ancient cultures in this connection uh, for two reasons. One is um, uh, concerns about new technology go all the way back to the invention of writing. Um, so like one of the Socratic dialogues, Socrates complains of, oh, this newfangled writing that the Phoenicians have come up with, it's gonna destroy people's memories. It's a terrible idea. Um, and there, like he's having a, he's griping about this new technological advance and its effects on society. Um, but now, nowadays in a culture that's mostly literate, we just like words are everywhere and we don't think twice about it. Um, but it, it, could, it could have been otherwise, and it was for many, many, many thousands of years of human history. Um, uh, the, the other reason is um, uh, the more, I, so, so the more I read about robotics in particular, uh, the more I find these cases where there's like this deep history of automata that goes back to Roman Egypt and medieval Islamic empires where like they made things that we would look at and say, well, that's a robot. Um, they weren't electronic, but they're like, they had things like humanoid, like metal humanoids that were like hydraulically powered and could do things like pour a bottle of wine and that sort of stuff. Um, uh, I, I don't know that there's much from that time period about whether, about like, are these things trustworthy or not? Uh, I somehow doubt it. Uh, these things were mostly spectacle for the rich, um, but it is interesting to to imagine like, what what might the people who weren't writing things down, the ordinary people of the day, what might they be saying about these things when they were gossiping about what the rich people were up to with these weird contraptions? Um, when it comes to the technologies that we've sort of started to take for granted, whether it's like Web 2.0 technologies like social media or uh, personal digital assistance, like you mentioned. Um, there's a metaphor that Regina Rinney, who's a, a philosopher at York University in Toronto, uh, that she used that I find um, um, both frightening and helpful. Um, 
So she, she describes social media as a capricious and vengeful God. Um, and what she means by this is that um, for the most part, you can, like, you can go along engaging with these things and it just, it'll just leave you alone. But sometimes um, it will give you this like horrible curse where suddenly you'll get like everyone will dogpile on you for something you said and they're taking it out of context and your mentions on Twitter explode um, and in a very negative way. Um, or it can bestow upon you a sort of mixed blessing where the same phenomenon happens, but for a good reason. Um, and now your notifications are exploding, but it's because you did something that people are excited about. A lot of people hate this. Um, and it's hard, to, it's hard to predict when this sort of thing's gonna happen um, because these algorith the algorithmic systems are constantly changing, they're opaque to users. Um, and so we end up in the situation where we have these odd rituals and taboos that we engage in to try to appease this vengeful and capricious God, where we'll do things like post TikTok videos at a certain time of day to try to tempt the algorithm to push it. Um, or we'll use certain hashtags or avoid referring to certain topics if we want to avoid furor about a particular hot button political issue. Um, and so we, we end up in this weird situation where it's, it's quasi-religious in this like pre-Abrahamic way where we don't really understand what's going on out there. And we're trying desperately to figure out how to engage with it uh, and otherwise to just go about our lives. Um, so I find that, I find that a, 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 an interesting and helpful way of characterizing what's going on. Um, can we trust Siri or, or Google Assistant or Alexa? Um, so in some ways, I think that's the wrong question. Um, I think the, in various ways, we might end up relying upon them, um, depending on how important they are to how you engage with information systems. They might end up becoming an important uh, tool for you. Um, but, uh, Really, the question is like, can we trust the people and corporations that are behind them? Um, because if Siri tells you bad directions or you ask it to call your friend and it calls your mother instead or something, um, that's like that's a glitch, that's a problem, but it's not like it's not like you can pick Siri up and say, How dare you? You've like you've screwed this up for me. Um, you can't hold Siri or another personal assistant or a computational system accountable for what it's done. Um, in theory, we can hold the people behind these socio-technical systems accountable. Um, and that enables us to, that, that enables a difference between trust and reliance. Uh, this is a distinction out of the moral philosophy about trust where um, there's, there seems to be some difference between merely hoping that something will um, uh, behave in a way that you expect. So you can rely on it. Um, I rely on my thermostat to work to heat my home in the winter. I rely on word processing software uh, to capture my words as I type them. Um, but I'm trusting the, the utility to make sure my gas stays on in the winter. And I'm trusting Microsoft to make sure that uh, word is not um, 
just going to keep crashing every time I type a letter Q or something. Um, so I think we, we can, to try to come back to answering the question, I think like we can, I think it's all right if we rely on these technologies, but we should be wary of the fact that they are not these detached uh, artifacts. They're parts of socio-technical systems that have people involved in them. And we need to ask, are the people and organizations that enable these technologies, are they trustworthy? Yeah, I think those are also really question, good questions because like, um, there's been a lot of news, I guess, on kind of the, the, the ways in which data uh, consumption happens. So like, for example, I think there was like a, a case earlier about Google Assistant randomly sending data to Google without you actually knowing, even though like they ask these questions, like, do you want to give feedback? And even if you had clicked no, apparently it's still sent in. So there was like a class action lawsuit on that. And so like, I think at that point, there's a lot of ethical questions that you have to consider. And like, it's good that there's like ethics committees at these corporations, but exactly what happened with the the, the Parrot paper and like what happened with the, those authors at Google uh, kind of like shows how it's almost like a dynasty and a monopoly in, in that area, right? Um, it, there's like some sort of control from the upper head um, and you're not really able to do things. And I feel like honestly, independent institutions um, for research like this are the only way to kind of do a deep dive um, into what you guys, or what like that author had called like this for, I don't remember exactly the terminology, but like, I guess this, this God of social media and stuff like that. Um, which I definitely think is by the way, very, very true, especially for all the youth who are getting involved in it now. It's almost like uh, we are a hundred percent consumers in, in this market. So there's not really a lot of realization of what's happening, not just psychologically, but also when you're actually physically using it, like what is going behind the scenes. And so Really, really interesting questions. And I think like maybe like a Netflix film for anyone who's who's watching is I think it's like something about social media. I, do you remember like the film uh, about like, it's on Netflix. It's about um, how like social media works from behind the scenes or something. They had like a lot of ethicists come in and like past workers. I don't remember the name. If it I find it, I'll put familiar. it in the description. <laughs> yeah, if I find it, I'll put it in the description. Um, but I kind of want to move on and ask about your, your work in education in the context of computer science, because I think there's like a lot of cool questions to ask here. So what exactly is like a gamified discussion platform in virtual computer science classrooms and how does it exactly affect children? Right. So, uh, so what you're referring to is a project that started and didn't get off the ground. Um, it's uh, so, so the background is um, towards the end of my last postdoc at Dalhousie University. Um, I was trying to come up with a, an, another project to pursue. Um, and uh, what we were proposing to do was to take this platform called Yellow Dig, which is um, it's a kind of social media for the classroom. Um, it's similar to a discussion board that you might have seen in an online classroom before. Um, but it's also similar in presentation to a Facebook group. Um, but the way it, it, the way it works is it incentivizes students to post discussions about material from the course um, by awarding them points for, first of all, for making a post, but they get more points if they make it for comments that they receive on their posts. And the thinking there is that 
this incentivizes people to make posts that generate discussion. Um, that and uh, there's some research that's come out of Yellowdig and some of the uh, institutions that they've worked with that suggests um, that this is helpful in getting students engaged with the material that it keeps them talking about topics from the classroom, uh, like from the class throughout the semester. It's not like this traditional distance learning approach where every week the professor says, post a question and write a reply to two others on uh, something from the reading, um, which tends to get like very minimal, very surface level engagement that doesn't really go anywhere and stays focused on like what was just immediately asked. Um, and Yellow Dig seems to create a situation where the students actually are interested in talking to one another about what's going on, while at the same time being incentivized with this carrot of getting, um, of getting points towards their grade um, by heading for a certain kind of target of points every week. Um, and so what we were hoping was to uh, uh, run a, uh, an educational psychology study, essentially, um, that would see if this affects the way that students think about computer science and computer programming and whether it uh, made them more interested in the subject or made them more confident in their abilities or um, made them change how they think about themselves, whether they feel comfortable describing themselves as a computer programmer, and whether this is different from uh, 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 when they come into the course, see if this intervention makes a difference there. Um, and uh, something that I was interested in that comes out of some of the philosophy of gamification is whether or not this, uh, this kind of approach actually gets people to care about the learning itself. Um, there's worries about gamification where, and this comes out of T. Nguyen's excellent work on this, um, that uh, Often when systems are gamified, people start to care about the score that it's producing rather than what that score is supposed to be operationalizing. So people get obsessed with say, hitting 10,000 steps a day on their Fitbit instead of doing, instead of like doing things for their health. And there are lots of reasons why going for 10,000 steps a day might be bad for your health. Um, and so uh, something I was interested in, again, project didn't end up happening, but I'm still interested in uh, whether when we gamify learning, does that help students to move into actually caring about learning the material for its own sake? Um, or do they stay at the level of caring about getting the points the way that some students might be motivated only by the grade and not by the learning process? Um, so these are things I continue to think about, but um, th that for a bunch of boring reasons, that project didn't end up happening. Got it. And I think, um, like, obviously, these questions are really interesting to explore. I mean, I think there's probably, I think there's probably going to need to be a lot of tests, um, um, and 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 make sure that there's not an, a terrible uh, data set there, because that's also going to be another issue with having like a lot of data um, to kind of prove those things. Because I think like questions like this have been explored in the past. And I think. Um, a lot of reward-based systems have like been implemented, like Khan Academy has points, uh, awards, badges, all of those things. Um, and I, like, I think there's probably a future in which I can see games or something like that being a core center of education because 
um that seems to be a lot more engaging than like what people consider boring lectures right um so that all makes sense i kind of want to ask you now um, about what research you're doing now um and like in the near future so anyone who might be interested can, can maybe follow up on your work kind of read about it and just learn a little bit more about what you're doing sure so um a couple of things that are coming out soon um are on epistemic injustice that's one and the other is on um trust in big tech. Um, so the epistemic injustice paper is about um, whether or not extremists could face an injustice when uh, their strange and dangerous social views end up being badly understood by the mainstream of society. Um, and we end up like, we end up saying in some cases when those extremists are themselves marginalized, um, this can constitute an injustice, but the bigger point that we want to make in that paper is to say um, that when people are epistemically marginalized, when they lack the resources to make sense of why uh, things are the way they are in their social lives, so um, let's say like people from this from marginalized communities in the U.S. South who turn to white supremacy for some way of understanding their place in the world. Um, one way of understanding what's going on there is uh, there's this contributing factor that um, they lack resources to conceive of why their situation is the way it is uh, for other, like from other angles, um, things like uh, big business and the way that capitalism disenfranchises some people rather than trying to turn to some kind of uh, racialized scapegoat. Um, so that's, that's one project that is uh, working its way out. The other uh, is on trust in big tech. And there, uh, I argue that uh, we actually can't trust the big tech companies, not because they're not trustworthy, but because they're so big and so powerful that it's very difficult to hold them to account whether you're, I guess, certainly if you're an individual and even if you're a powerful nation state. Uh, we saw this recently with Australia trying to rein in the excesses of news on Facebook and Facebook basically responded with an information blockade um, by blocking the sharing of news on Facebook in Australia um, until the Australian uh, parliament gave them some concessions as they were continuing to draft the legislation. Um, and so for, for some of the reasons I suggested earlier when I was talking about trust, um, because these companies are so, so big and so powerful, they can't be held accountable. And if they can't be held accountable for violations of trust, then in some sense, they can't be trusted to begin with. Um, and so in order to get back to the point where these are entities that we could trust to like, at all, um, we have to smash their power somehow. Um, and one way of doing that would be to break them up and force them to compete with one another more. Um, and that would make it easier to regulate them. It'd make it uh, easier for us to engage with them. They would no longer be these monolithic forces that are as powerful as nation states. Um, and we, we've, we've done this before. We did it with the oil barons in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Arguably, it didn't work out the way that we hoped it might, but you know, it, it, it at least um, 
it at least broke up the uh, the wealth of people like Rockefeller, um, who otherwise would have been able to act with like almost complete impunity. Um, and so I think we need to do something similar again. Um, other stuff I'm working on, I'm writing a paper about computer ethics at, at higher education institutions and way like different approaches to doing that. Um, and I'm doing some work with uh, embedded ethics to find ways of bringing this approach that we have at Harvard of integrating ethics into the computer science classroom um, to other contexts like business education or uh, the high school setting. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what comes out of that. Um, the best place to keep up with stuff that comes out that I'm writing is on my Phil People page or on my website, or people can follow me on Twitter if they want. Um, though I post about philosophy and uh, computer ethics about as often as I post about Dungeons and Dragons, so your mileage may vary. Of course, yeah. Um, I think these are all really, really cool research projects in the future, and I'm kind of curious about that Harvard program in terms of high school. But um, yeah, I mean, I just want to, I mean, I'll, first of all, I just want to mention that I'll put those links in, in the description, uh, most likely to your website. And um, I guess, is it, I think maybe your Phil People page is, is on your website, maybe. So, or I can, yeah, or I can just cite both in, in, that, in that case. Um, otherwise, I, I just, just wanted to, I guess, say thank you so much, because that kind of like wraps up our discussion today. Um, like, I think there was a lot of cool kind of exploration of uh, like trust in the context of computer science and in the context of these corporations and kind of what a potential future might look like um, in terms of accepting these companies, accepting the 21st century with all this technology. So thank you so much. I learned so much um, and I'm sure our audiences as well. Thank you very much for having me. This was a lot of fun.